ومن أحسن قولا ممن دعا إلى الله وعمل صالحا وقال إنني من المسلمين السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته All praise is due to Allah سبحانه وتعالى The one and the unique It is He alone that we worship and it is His blessings that we seek. He is the Lord of the oppressed and He answers the call of the weak. Uh, so today we're going to inshallah continue our uh, Tuesday Q&A session and we'll begin immediately. We have uh, two very uh, juicy and very interesting inshallah questions. Uh, the first question comes from Abu Dhabi, uh, our brother Firasat. He says that uh, he's been looking into Islamic finance and he says, that can I explain in simple terms, he has this point underlined, can I explain in simple terms the concepts of murabaha and musharaka and mudaraba and also can I recommend some books on modern Islamic finance in the English language. So these are uh, simple questions inshaAllah ta'ala, so let us begin. Now as I've said uh, multiple times that uh, I have never claimed nor do I view myself as a specialist in Islamic, modern Islamic economics. I'm just a minor student of knowledge when it comes to the field of modern finance. And I always, whenever I talk about finance, I give you the opinions and positions of ulama, far greater authorities in this, uh, in this uh, field, in the contemporary issues of finance. However, this question is an easy one because it deals with the classical definitions. Apparently our brother wants to know how do, uh, how do we understand these terms Terms so that when we open up the books of fiqh or the modern Islamic finance text that these terms can then be uh, understandable. So inshallah uh, what I'm going to do is present uh, these concepts in very simple language with, with uh, illustrations that inshallah will be useful for the beginning student of uh, knowledge. And of course as I've said again multiple times that modern Islamic economics and the fatawas related to it is a very very interesting enterprise of how classical fiqh connects with modern fiqh and why and how it is necessary for some areas, not all, but for some areas that we rethink through because our modern economic system is so radically different from the way that bartering occurred a thousand years ago that you cannot open up any book of early Islamic law for the first 300 for the first 1300 uh, years and then expect to understand our modern day transactions you have to extrapolate you have to rethink through and so these terms mudaraba and uh, musharaka uh, and uh, murabaha these are terms that are found in early islamic law that are now being used quite a lot when it comes to the issue of modern finance and because of this, it is important that we understand the classical issues. So let us begin with the first term, uh, murabaha. Murabaha, uh, from the root rabaha, which means to profit, which means to make a profit. Ribih in the Arabic language means your profit. So if I purchase this water for $10 and I sell it for $15, my ribih, my profit is $5. So murabaha is the active uh, engagement of making a profit. And what murabaha entails, is an offer to buy merchandise at a set amount of profit. You make an offer to purchase a person's merchandise and you state in the offer that I'm going to give you such and such a profit. However much your cost was, however much you spent on the initial investment, I will give you such and such a profit. A very simple example. Suppose I have come back from a faraway land and I have imported this product, okay? I say this is a product that I have purchased from a faraway land and I've come back to my home country and I purchased it once again, let's say for $10, okay? Now, generally speaking, if you walk into a store and I have this item on display, you will not know the cost. I'm going to advertise it for $15, let's say, and it's up to you to buy or to not buy. The difference in murabaha is that you know the cost of the item and you then add on to it, you tack on to it, the buyer, not the seller, the buyer tacks on the profit and says, I will give you a profit of 10% or of $10 for every bottle, whatever it might be. You tack on the profit and you make an offer to buy uh, based upon a specific profit amount. And uh, this transaction, so for example, 
I come and tell you, I purchased this bottle of water from, mashallah, it's from France, this one, okay? Uh, this bottle of water for, let's just say, $10, okay? And I come back to uh, America. And you walk into my house or my merchandise store, whatever, and you know, and I have said that this bottle is $10. And you say, okay, I will buy all of your water bottles that you purchased for $10, I will buy it and give you a profit of $2 each. So you will you will be getting $12 for every 10 or $3 or I'll pay double. Doesn't matter how much profit you put on, this is called murabaha. So murabaha is an offer to purchase merchandise with a known amount or percentage of profit. You can do either amount or percentage. Amount means I'll give you $2 for every bottle more or percentage, I'll give you 20% for every bottle more. This type of transaction is permitted by unanimous consensus of all the scholars of Islam. There is no problem whatsoever because this is, what would be the problem? You, everybody makes a profit, you know, when, I, when you sell something, that's the, where everybody desires to make a profit. And if you yourself offer the profit amount, you yourself say, I'm gonna purchase this for, you know, $2 profit or 20% profit, why would that make it haram? Ibn Qudama in his Mughni says that this type of transaction, murabaha, this is ja is permissible and there is no controversy over its impermissibility. In fact, he says, I don't know of anybody who even said it is disliked, who even said it is makru. And so this is a completely permissible uh, purchase. Now, obviously the concept of murabaha has nothing to do with riba because you are not taking a loan in the first place. I am selling you merchandise and you come and I own the merchandise, and you come and you make an offer to purchase the merchandise. Now, riba would be I give you the money, and then you pay back more money. That's a totally different concept, and of course there is no similarity between a real murabaha loan and between an interest, uh, sorry, a murabaha transaction, and between an interest-based uh, loan. Now, you can also purchase in installments by unanimous consensus, there's no problem. If I were to say, hey, I'm selling this bottle for $15 and I purchased it for 10, you say, okay, I don't have 15, but can I pay $5 every month? So you will pay five, 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 no problem. This is completely permissible. And if you offer me the, uh, the uh, payment in installments and you offer me the profit, that too is completely permissible. So this is a bottle for $10. You know it's $10. You walk into my store, we're friends, we're acquaintances, or however reason, you know it's $10. And you say, okay, I'm gonna purchase this bottle for 15 and I'll pay you in installments $5 every month. This is the essence of murabaha. There is no problem whatsoever. So this is murabaha. Now, why is murabaha interesting in Islamic finance and modern Islamic finance and in purchasing houses and cars and whatnot? Well, because now we get to uh, the whole issue of the gray area. Today's lecture is not about modern Islamic finance. I'm just gonna link a little bit so you understand. I have given a much longer conversation with Dr. Hatim Al-Hajj. Uh, you can find this on our YouTube channel. Uh, just Google it, uh, myself in his name and uh, his modern Islamic uh, financial transactions. I've also spoken to Dr. Akram Nadwi uh, about uh, modern Islamic finance uh, and, um, and these uh, so-called mortgage loans and whatnot. So you can listen to those lectures for more information. Nonetheless, uh, a brief uh, a brief um, introduction to this, that why is murabaha mentioned when it comes to Islamic finance and houses? And that is because that some banks they offer a type of transaction that is a modified murabaha. It's not the classical murabaha, they add some conditions and this is where the gray area comes. Now the modern uh, uh, Islamic financial transactions that banks do, they try to make it obviously more user-friendly and they try to make it uh, more pertinent to the culture that we live in and sometimes the conditions that they add are considered problematic. Uh, for example, some scholars, very small group of scholars will problematize the fact that you go to somebody and you tell them to purchase uh, when they had no desire to purchase. This is uh, the first issue. So suppose I don't have this bottle of water, but I can afford it. I am the person who has $10. You don't have $10, but you want this bottle of water. What if you were to come to me and you were to say to me, hey, can you go to purchase this water? and I will pay you murabaha loan, I'll give you a profit of 10, 20%, I promise you I'll give you the profit and I'll pay it in installments, right? And so 
the bank will go purchase the house or the car. The bank had no desire to purchase the house or car. It will purchase the house or car uh, for, let's say, 100,000. And it'll then, you have said, I promise you I'm gonna make a 15% uh, you know, uh, profit for your house or purchase. So then you sell it 115,000 and you sell it in installments. Every month he's gonna pay 2,000 until the entire house is paid off. This is called, uh, that. Uh, this, this transaction is called Bay' al-Murabih. Uh, the concept of murabaha, but now somebody is commanding you to buy the merchandise and you didn't have the intention to buy it. Now this is, again, here's where we're adding, we're, we're, we're making a, a classical concept, try to fit to our uh, understandings of how the modern world works. And in and of itself, there's nothing wrong with that. But again, the issue comes to what level can you add conditions? The vast majority of modern Islamic uh, finance experts have said that this uh, this type of transaction is permissible with some conditions and of those conditions is that the bank or the middleman or the rich person actually owns the merchandise and acquires the merchandise and puts it in his name and then sells it on to you so it's not just going to be a paper transaction that this bottle of water remains where it is and the ownership is transferred from the first owner to the third person and the middleman is simply just giving the money and taking the money and whatnot because then it becomes very fishy however if the middleman, even if he's told to buy it, if he says, okay, now it's my water bottle. You know what? I have the right to change my mind. Even if you told me to buy it, well, that's your request. Now that I own it, suppose I want to sell it to somebody else, I have that right. Or I can sell it to you based upon our uh, uh, verbal agreement. All of this is something that uh, makes um, certain uh, problematic areas less problematic, i.e., the fact that you own the property or you own the water bottle in the middle and then you then have a second transaction to sell, it makes it much easier than if there was simply just a paper transfer from the first to the last. Also, of course, one of the biggest issues is that there should be no penalties on late repayment. Uh, and that is something that, of course, we don't believe in uh, late penalties. So again, the, you can look up the different fatawas and different conditions that are put, but this is what murabaha is. And conceptually speaking, uh, pretty much all of the fiqh councils of the modern world and all of the modern Islamic finance experts have said, if the person goes to a middleman and asks him to purchase with the verbal agreement or even the written agreement that I'm gonna purchase based upon a profit as long as the middleman party actually acquires and then there's no haram conditions and clauses and then they uh, give the merchandise at the agreed profit in installments, that would be a permissible uh, transaction. Wallahu ta'ala Of course, in reality, banks add so many conditions and clauses to such murabaha loans, and this is where Islamic banks, this is where the problem comes. So we're not gonna go over there, as I said. As for musharaka, Musharaka is a very broad concept, and it basically means a partnership, a financial partnership. So just like the word shirk, a partner with Allah, sharik is a partner, right? So musharaka is a business partner from the same concept of shirk, which is a crea uh, uh, creating a partner uh, for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So the concept of shirk is to have any partner, sharaka, sharik. Sharik means your partner. So musharaka is a financial partnership where two or more people come together and they all invest in a project and they then share the profit and the loss of the project. And again, no problem whatsoever. This is how the world works since the beginning of time and it will continue to work. You want to, let's say, uh, uh, make a building and sell it for a profit, but you can't afford to make a building on your own. You can't afford to buy the land. You come together with 10 of your friends and you say, okay, let's all put together 50,000 and then we have 500,000. We will purchase this plot for 150, 200. We're gonna you know, build a house for you know, 300 something dollars. Then we'll sell it for six, $700,000. So the, we pooled together, we got $500,000. We made the project, we did it. Now we're gonna sell the house and then we're gonna make a profit off of it. This is called musharaka. And it's very straightforward, uh, conceptually speaking. Obviously you can have 
infinite types of partnerships, what percentages, how many people, to what percent each person is required to invest, what are the rights and privileges of every single partner, because you don't have to share the exact same rights and privileges. What are the percentage profits, and can you get more profit than your initial investment? So for example, if somebody invested 30%, another person invested 70%, must the profits and loss be shared at 30 and 70, or can they renegotiate because one of the partners is more involved with the project than the other? These are all you know, questions that our fuqaha have discussed, but the concept of musharaka is something that there should be no controversy over, and there is no controversy. Theoretically, the concept of musharaka, i.e. multiple people coming together and forming uh, a business ventureship, or partnering, I should say, on a business ventureship, this is called musharaka. And it becomes problematic, once again, when you start adding many conditions, and the person who's basically, the, in this case, the financial institution, the bank, is adding so many conditions that essentially they're almost guaranteed, or perhaps they are absolutely guaranteed to never make a loss, in which case there is no question that any time you have a business uh, a partnership in which there is the potential for loss for one side and not the potential for loss for the other, there is no question that that entire uh, enterprise is extremely shaky, if not outright forbidden, because there is a principle in Islamic law, al-ghunmu bil-ghurmi, that when there is a chance for having a profit, there must also be a chance for having a loss. There cannot be guaranteed profit for any of the investors, or else you are you are work you are walking into a land field of interest, the point of interest. The reason why riba is haram is because the rich are guaranteed to get richer, and the Sharia does not allow that to happen. When people come together for a partnership, the goal and desire is for profit, but there should be a risk of loss, and that risk of loss, here's the key point, must be shared, not necessarily equally, the one who invests 10% is not going to be like the one who invests 90%, but even the 10% person, there must be the percentage of loss, it could be 10%, it could be less or more, depending on the agreement, but uh, the problem comes again when the third party, in this case the Islamic banks or, or whatnot, they add so many conditions that sometimes it becomes basically a guarantee almost. So how does it work? Again, I'm being very simplistic here. Again, this is not a, uh, a lecture on modern Islamic finance, but our brother wanted the basics, the summary. That much, inshallah, we can do in this lecture. So how do Islamic banks uh, function on the Musharaka model? So the bank and the buyer, uh, of the house will enter into a, a, a modified musharaka, where they will both purchase the house, 5% is owned by the, 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 the person, 95% by the bank, because the person gave only 5,000, the bank gave 95,000, let's say house is 100,000. So the bank owns 95% and the person owns 5%. Okay, technically that's allowed, no problem. But then the bank puts the condition that you must purchase my 95% share. Okay, that too is not a problem, you can have that condition. But then the bank puts another condition, but in the meantime, I own 95%, so you need to pay me rent on that. And so what ends up happening, and again, this is, so you have a diminished musharaka, al-mutanaqisa, al-muntahiya bit-tamlik, you have a diminishing partnership over time. Uh, that end result is that you continue to increase your percentage ownership, and eventually the bank becomes 0% owner, and you become 100% uh, owner. This is uh, called diminished uh, partnership that ends in complete ownership of the house. This is one of the most common mechanisms uh, of uh, the modern Islamic banks when it comes to Islamic financing, and again, some scholars allow it, some scholars don't allow it, and again, why and whatnot is, is besides the point of this. However, theoretically, musharaka is a very simple contract, and there should be no problem. Uh, the problem comes when you keep on putting conditions such that one of the parties, in this case the Islamic bank, is pretty much guaranteed in some cases to make a profit. And any time the bank is guaranteed to make a profit, and you are not guaranteed to make a profit, you could become a loss or whatnot, this is really pretty much uh, open shut case that in such scenarios, the bank is, is basically co-opting a mechanism of riba. You need to be careful for that. But again, I'm not uh, speaking about every single contract. There are some musharaka contracts with Islamic banks that there's much more leeway and they're much better and they have conditions that are reasonable. So again, this is not a topic on modern finance. You wanted to know musharaka, I told you what is musharaka. And the third term you asked about, dear brother Firas, is mudaraba, mudaraba. 
And in fact, mudaraba is a type of partnership, it's a type of musharaka, and it's actually very, very simple to understand. Mudaraba is a musharaka in which one of the partners has the money and the others has the skill set. Simple as that. So rather than every partner coming with money, which is basically the common musharaka, if one partner has money and the other partner has a skill set, and the two come together to form a, uh, a, a cooperation, a business venture, and they agree to share in the profits and in the loss, agree to the percentages. It doesn't have to be 50-50. It could be 90-10, 70-30, 60-40. However they want to decide, it's a mutually agreed upon uh, partnership. So for example, suppose that uh, a person is a handyman, he's a carpenter, and he wants to open a shop to do his carpentry, but he doesn't have the money for a shop. So a rich investor comes and says, you know what, I like you. You're a nice guy, you're an honest guy, and I like your quality of work. I will finance the shop, you will do the manual labor, and the money that is generated, we split it, you know, 50-50, 60-40, 70-30, 90-10, whatever they agree to. This is mudaraba. Suppose somebody has, mashallah, cooking skills, chef. A nice chef and uh, an investor says, you know what, your, your skills are so good, you should open a restaurant. And the person says, I don't have money for a restaurant, no worries. I will give you the restaurant, I'm going to finance it, I'm going to do everything. You are going to be the, the chef and whatnot, and then you bring in your sweat and labor, I'll bring in the finances, and then this is the contract, you must have the contract, you agree, percentages, who is going to do what, all of this must be agreed upon before you enter into a mudaraba. In fact, again, by unanimous consensus, uh, no problems, there is no, pro again, musharaka and mudaraba, all of these are conceptually no problem, how you interpret them uh, in the modern world by adding all of these conditions where, is where it becomes a gray area. You know, our Prophet Muhammad وسلم, was involved in a mudaraba contract. You're all aware of it. He was, before he got married, what did he do? Khadija radiallahu anha, she approached the Prophet وسلم, and she said, I'm looking for a business partner. I'm looking for somebody who's going to take my caravan to Bilad al-Sham and manage and barter and negotiate and make a profit and that person, some, some reports say, keep a third and I'll take two thirds. Okay, so this is mudaraba. This is exactly what mudaraba is. Our Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and Khadija. Khadija has the wealth. Our Prophet has the honesty and the skill set and bartering and negotiating. So Khadija gave the wealth to the Prophet The Prophet went to Bilad al-Sham and he bartered, negotiated. He came back with a massive amount of profit. He gave the percentage to Khadija. He took the percentage guaranteed to him. And Khadija was so impressed at his honesty and his bashfulness and whatnot, the rest as they say is history. And the concept of mudaraba, again, there is no difference of opinion by ijma' it is allowed as long as one side gives a known amount, the other side does the specified job and the profits are split according to an agreed upon percentage between them. You cannot split profits by a number in this case. Mudaraba, you cannot say $100 because you do not know. If, if you say $100, you're paying him a wage. If you say $100 a day, that's a salary, that's not Mudaraba, that, oh, that's a different type of contract. Mudaraba is you are sharing the profit and loss uh, and you're sharing uh, based upon percentages and each party comes to the table, uh, one with the money and the other with the skill set. Now again, when I say one, it doesn't have to be one. It can be 10 people, five of them with money and five of them with skill sets. The point is that Mudaraba is that type of contract where uh, not everybody is bringing uh, money and there must be a known percentage, a known amount to work, everything. There cannot be uh, uh, any unreasonable unknown. However, once again, uh, what happens once again is that in our times, uh, sometimes uh, conditions are placed that basically make it an interest loan. So for example, the bank says to the chef that, okay, uh, if you make a profit, we're gonna get, you know, 70% of the profit. However, if you make a loss, then you must pay us back we invested 100,000, you must pay us back 100,000. For example, I'm just giving a hypothetical example. If the bank puts this condition, it is not mudaraba, it is an interest loan. Because you cannot place a condition that you're guaranteed to get your money back. The point is, and this is the whole difference of the philosophy between Islamic finance and between the modern financial world. Islamic finance, because there is a chance of loss, you are gonna raise the bar of critical thinking and of making sure you're getting it with the right person. You're gonna do your research and due diligence. If you have the money and you are looking for somebody to make some profit, you're gonna make sure you find the right person, the honest person, and then you will face the consequences if you made a mistake. However, banks, they don't care. 
They, want, they don't care if you have bad credit, no credit. They maybe even want you to fail because they're going to confiscate. They're gonna, you're going to go on the street. They're guaranteed their money. And by the way, you know, the whole 2008 crash and complex, the, the whole industry that crashed here in America is because of this issue, that the banks knew that they're giving loans to people who could not pay them back and they didn't care because from their perspective, they're going to get rich off of that. And you know, the system is a massive Ponzi scheme, but I don't want to go there. Let's stop it there right now. Point being that you cannot uh, you know, play with economics in this fashion without getting blowback. And that's what happened in 2008 in the Islamic Sharia. You do not enter into such uh, such types of transactions where there is a guaranteed uh, profit. On the contrary, there must be a genuine risk. And so, if you invest a hundred thousand in a good, you know, uh, qualified carpenter or a chef or whatever, and for whatever reason his carpentry doesn't sell. You know what? The both of you are going to have a loss. He's going to lose all of his time and effort. You're going to lose your money or a portion of your money. That's the loss that happens. That's the whole point here. And that's why such a transaction becomes halal. Anytime you eliminate the risk and eliminate the chance of loss to one party and not to the other, then you are walking into the room of riba, of interest. And that is not something that our uh, sharia allows. So to conclude here, and as I said, by the way, you can use this as a litmus test. Anytime you have a partnership, a group of people in which the more powerful and the, the one that's basically the, 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 the elephant in the room, let's say, or the, this 800 pound gorilla, as they say, right? Anytime you have a partnership in which one person, typically the most powerful one, is guaranteeing that they're never gonna make a loss and others have a chance of making a loss, then take this as a litmus test that what you're looking at is not a business partnership. It is in fact a mechanism, a hiyala, to overcome uh, something that is haram and to try to make the haram halal. Uh, and that is a type of riba. There must be a genuine, uh, a genuine risk of loss upon all parties. Not all the same, for example, if somebody invested 90% and the other person invested 5%, the loss is going to be different. The 5% is going to lose less, but there must be the chance of loss. So, mudaraba is the business transaction in which one person brings skill set and the other person or the other partners bring the money. To conclude uh, this first question, what we see about modern Islamic finance is that they take these models that are found in our rich heritage and they understand that these models, they need to be modified, conditions needed to be added, you know, the context needs to be refined and they then present them to the end user. And in this process of refining and, and, and adding conditions, which overall is what fiqh is all about, contextualization and looking at your circumstance, some of our scholars allow some things, other scholars do not allow them and this is where the gray area uh, becomes and so you can find out more about that by uh, you know, listening to lectures on modern Islamic finance uh, and you go to the experts for that. Uh, the brother also asked uh, for a book list. I will recommend three uh, books and I don't, it doesn't mean I'm endorsing every single paragraph of these books, but you wanted a book list of where to begin. So I'll give you the first book by one of the most uh, authoritative references on modern Islamic finance. I have uh, skimmed through this book and benefited immensely from it. It is called An Introduction to Islamic Finance by Mufti Taqi Uthmani. An Introduction to Islamic Finance by Mufti Taqi Uthmani. Mufti Taqi Uthmani is one of the world-renowned specialists in Islamic finance. Uh, he is from uh, Pakistan, uh, and his father was the Grand Mufti of Pakistan as well. And so, uh, and uh, this book has been translated to English, and you will find it on Amazon. So uh, this is definitely a book that I encourage you to read if you're interested in modern Islamic finance. Another one, uh, actually written by a non-Muslim, but I found it to be very simple and very user-friendly, and it's something that non-specialists will benefit from and he's simply gathering together the simple facts it is called islamic finance in a nutshell a guide for non-specialists islamic finance in a nutshell a guide for non-specialists by brian kettle k-a-t-t-e-l brian kettle islamic finance in a nutshell a guide for non-specialists if you want uh, something a little bit more in depth and a little bit more specialist uh, than uh, one book that I can recommend overall. And again, doesn't mean I agree with everything and who am I to disagree? I'm simply saying this is one of the authoritative references. Uh, it is a, an edited volume 
by Tariq al-Diwani, edited. So he has a whole bunch of different articles and different chapters from different authors. And it is called Islamic Banking and Finance. And this is more of a, a, a in-depth work. So this is not something I'd recommend for the first user, initial user. Rather, uh, if you've read some basic books or you have a background in finance and you know classical or basically mainstream finance, then you go to the more advanced book. And this is one of them, Islamic Banking and Finance by Tariq al-Diwani. Now again, there are many, many books out there. I don't mean to discourage you from other books, but you asked me my opinion. And these are books that I have some experiences, especially the first one, Mufti Taqiz is um, uh, a standard introduction to the topic and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best <clears throat> our second question an anonymous sister well she asks to remain anonymous as you'll see why she has a very lengthy question which I'll summarize uh, apparently she says that she got married to a man and after she got married she discovered that the man had an illegitimate child from a lady from before their marriage. Obviously, he was not married to that lady. And he, the father or her husband, still has a relationship with this child. He brings the child over every once in a while. And uh, she was not informed of uh, this child before the marriage. And now she feels uncomfortable, especially because the two of them have children and they have daughters. And she doesn't know, is this boy considered a mahram to her biological daughters? Meaning this child is a, not from marriage. This child was from a relationship that uh, was pre, uh, uh, pre the marriage, premarital intercourse, basically before they got married as well. And she's also asking, does, does, does that child have any financial right or inheritance rights over my husband who is the father of my children? Should this boy be considered a part of uh, my family or not. Now, no doubt, um, I'm basing my answers on what you said, so I don't know his side of the story. If what you have said is true, uh, no doubt, for you to not have been told is not something that is good. This is not information that he should have kept hidden from you. Because, of course, while the marriage is valid, obviously it is not healthy to keep such secrets because you are the life partner of this person. He has a child that is his. And also the fact that he was in an illegitimate relationship is something that you have the right to be affected by. Let me put it that way, right? And so it's not something that um, what he did was not right by not telling you. And you should have been made aware of the circumstances of uh, this person and this child and then make an informed uh, decision. However, the fact that you were not told or not aware does not negate the validity of the marriage contract between you and your husband. So your marriage contract is valid because whatever sin the man or the woman has done before the marriage does not, meaning sin of a you know a sexual nature, it does not invalidate the, the, the marriage itself. And so the previous sins of a spouse with a, a third party or a child being born does not nullify the nikah that is taking place. Uh, but no doubt what the person has done is not something that is praiseworthy and um, you have the right to feel uh, irritated and you have the right to express that irritation and you know to that he should make amends uh, for whatever way possible. However, to move on to the more technical uh, issue, this was the moral if you like outrage or whatnot, now we get to the technical uh, issue. This issue is multifaceted and I'm going to give you generic rules. I do encourage you or your husband to go to a sheikh and a local sheikh and explain your situation so that the sheikh can quiz you and get more details. Uh, again, that's uh, something that pretty much all the time, if there's a specific fatwa, go to a specific scholar so that any type of uh, uh, um, any type of exceptional circumstances uh, can be taken care of. I can't do that in a generic Q&A. But I will give you gen generic knowledge about this issue of illegitimate children because uh, it is something that is uh, something that people need to know about and we seek Allah's refuge and protection from ever having to deal with it ourselves. Do realize by the way that uh, this issue of, of unwed children or children born out of sorry un, children born out of unwed marriages, uh, this is one of the greatest dangers of intercourse outside of marriage. As it brings about children, it results in children who don't have stable families. And this is one of the main reasons, not the only one, not the, not the, you know, not the primary, but one of the primary reasons why our religion has legislated uh, sexuality. 
and that why it encourages sexuality only within marriage and it forbids sexuality outside of marriage. We also need to know that the child of an unwed couple is absolutely blameless in all circumstances and that never should such a child carry any blame or be made to feel guilty for what the parents have done. It is true that some books of Islamic fiqh, some books of law, some of them, they do say that the child born of such a marriage should not be the imam or should not be a person of power or dignity, but that is their cultural understanding of certain generic aspects of the sharia. In reality, the Quran is explicit. That no soul shall bear the sin of another. Whatever the parents might have done, the child is sinless. And it is not the fault of the child. The circumstances of the birth of the child have nothing to do with the honor and dignity of that child. And it is unbefitting and unbecoming and un-Islamic for anybody to diminish the honor of that child for something that the parent might have done. So we need to be very explicit and clear about this. The child deserves nothing but love and comfort and no one should make the child feel uncomfortable. Anybody who does this is doing something that is sinful for the person that is doing it, and the child is free of any sin of the parents. The, uh, the next issue is that the child that is born outside of wedlock, uh, technically it does not take on the legal protections afforded by marriage. Now again, we have to differentiate between the moral status and the dignified status of the child, which is unblemished, versus the technical uh, perks that come from being born in a marriage situation, that's something separate. And a child that is born outside of the wedlock does not take on any legal protection of a marriage because there was no marriage. In fact, that's one of the purposes of marriage. Marriage brings about legal protection between the partners and for children born from that partnership. In Islamic law, uh, the child takes on the name of the father, the, stat, the, 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 um, the financial responsibility is that of the father, the child inherits from the father, the father is financially responsible for raising the child, etc., etc. However, if the child is born outside of the wedlock, then the default position is that there are no such protections. And therefore, the child will not take the name of the child. Uh, of the father, the child will not inherit from the father, and uh, we're going to come to this point again, but again, this is the default position that uh, the financial responsibility will not be on somebody who is not considered to be the legal father of the child. This is the default position. Now, if the woman is married and zina occurs with another man, that's something totally else. In this case, the child shall take on the name of the married husband and any external affair will be ignored and neglected by anybody outside of the marriage situation. No one else has the right to interfere in a marriage situation. Even if modern tests are done or whatnot, it means nothing to us because our laws are not necessarily the same as biological laws. That's a separate issue. Our sharia, our fiqh is not necessarily the same as biological DNA. So if there is a married couple and billah, we seek Allah's refuge, zina occurred and the, the married lady gave birth to a child and DNA later showed that this child is actually the son of so-and-so. From an Islamic perspective, we will ignore that because our Prophet ﷺ said, Al-waladu lil-firash. The child is ascribed to the marriage or the bed that it was born upon. Al-waladu lil-firash. This is the rule of Islamic law. There's only one exception, and that is when the father himself, sorry, not the father, when the husband of this woman says, no, this child is not mine. And the husband then undertakes a particular process called li'an uh, or mula'ana. We're not going to go down there. That's a technical thing between the husband and wife. The husband and only the husband has the right to say, I know this child is not mine. And then there is a procedure to be done. An outsider cannot and should not get involved. It's none of their business. Uh, and if the couple has passed on and modern DNA tests bring out about some other news and whatnot, this is all relegated to you know uh, the footnotes and it doesn't affect anything. Technically, the child shall remain according to the, uh, the, the marriage. So al-waladu lil-firash. A married lady who has a child, that child is ascribed to the marriage 
and not to any type of affair, illicit affair that might have occurred, even if DNA shows to the contrary, that means nothing because we want to just cover up anything that would have happened uh, and uh, provide dignity and sanctity to the marriage itself. However, if the lady were single, not married, and the father and mother of the child both agree and claim that this child is theirs. So this is now a couple, a boyfriend, girlfriend, a premarital couple, whatever, they, they are together for a while, and there's not been, she's not a, a lady that's sleeping with multiple men, so she no, doesn't know, no. She has been in an illicit relationship, but with one person. And the two of them, then they have the child, and then they claim, both of them, they say, this is our child, we know it's our child. Now, if they decide to get married, if they decide to get married, can we backtrack the marriage? The child is already born, clearly before the nikah. We're not talking about a gray area and you know within seven months or something, less than nine months, whatever. If it's six months after the nikah, no problem. But, so the child and the child that is born after the nikah, even by six months, inshallah, no problem, we don't ask. However, what if the child is clearly born and then the nikah takes place and the couple says, this is my child. So here we have a majority and a minority opinion. I hope this is a clear situation. Both man and woman are unmarried. The both of them uh, committed uh, a zina with one another. The both agree and claim that this child is mine. If there's disagreement or whatnot, then, then the whole situation falls apart. And the both decide to get married. So now they have a legitimate nikah and a child from an illegitimate relationship between the same two. The majority position, which is the default of the four madhabs, is that the child shall be considered illegitimate even if the marriage takes place. However, Ishaq ibn Rahweh and Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah and ibn al-Qayyim and many modern scholars, including my own uh, teacher, Shaykh ibn Uthameen, they argued quite forcefully that in this case, with all of these conditions, we shall backtrack the marriage and we shall overlook that the child was born before the nikah and we shall consider the child to be a legitimate child, name and inheritance and everything will be established. And this is the position that I also follow and uh, it is it is in line with the goals of the Sharia where we want to cover up a sin and we don't want to criminalize the child, penalize the child. We want to cover up any sin and not make a big deal about it. And we want to protect the interests of the child and to not uh, you know, have any backlash about the, the, the two have repented clearly and they're trying to make amends. They're trying to get married together. They do get married together. In this case, according to Ibn Taymiyyah and Ibn Al-Qayyim and many, many modern scholars that we extrapolate then the nikah if you like and we simply claim the child to be a part of the, uh, uh, the basically a legitimate child from this union and from this uh, marriage however the sister's case the one that emailed me this man had a child and did not ever marry the woman that he had the child with so this does not apply uh, to this case so if he had married or even if he gets married a legitimate nikah meaning not a fake one a legitimate nikah and uh, the both of them, they know that this is their child. They were, they were, you know, together for that period of time, and they both acknowledge this. According to Ibn Taymiyyah and many ulama, in this case, the child shall be considered a legitimate one, and we don't ask about their past. However, if there's no nikah, then there's nothing to extrapolate. So, in your case, your husband did not uh, engage in a nikah with this lady, and so you cannot extrapolate. Uh, back to this, so the child is going to be considered uh, basically uh, technically, legally not um, his. However, what does this mean when it comes to financial responsibility? So because the default position is that the father, the biological father, is not the legal father, and there shall be no inheritance, so those scholars said, Likewise, there shall be no maintenance, okay? When there's no technical or legal linkage between this child and between the man who sired him, even if it's a biological father, so they said, just like there's no inheritance and just like the child does not have to, you know, obey the father and whatnot, so too the father does not have to give financial support upon the child. And this is the default position of our earlier scholars. Now doesn't have to, does not mean that he should not. There's no doubt that he should, especially if 
uh, the child is having difficulty being raised by the mother and her relatives. And here I want to just point out, and I always, you know, when it comes to uh, Islamic law, I do not view myself as, astaghfirullah, ever being independent of the giants who precede me. I always am a minor person in their shadows, and I never give a fatwa or a position that uh, is unique and unprecedented in Islamic history. There are some areas that I don't mind exploring, some issues of Islamic theology, some issues of the seerah of the Prophet, some issues when it comes to the concept of, you know, ulum al-Quran and ahruf and qira There are certain issues I don't mind being a little bit more going out on a limb and being in a very minority, or maybe even bringing something new, and I will defend myself when I do that. But when it comes to Islamic law, I have always said that I am simply following giants and I never break away from those giants. I don't consider myself to be qualified to practice ijtihad in Islamic law. Uh, however, I will simply point out, I will simply point out that a group of modern scholars, and this is a modern uh, opinion, are arguing that a person who engages in illegitimate intercourse with a lady that that person should be partially, if not fully, financially liable as well. Uh, and this is a modern opinion. And so I'm simply saying it's there. I'm not endorsing it because I don't feel qualified to endorse such a minority position because it is only being argued by a group of modern Muslim ulama uh, in the classical position. I, 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 I'm not aware of anybody who obligated who obligated upon the biological father, the maintenance of the child. Uh, but this modern group of scholars, and they're writing in academic journals, they're writing, these are people that are working in, uh, especially scholars trained in fiqh, who then work in courts of law in the modern world. They see things that sometimes uh, people that are simply with their students and reading, uh, you know, the blessed books, they don't necessarily sometimes see. And, you know, what they're arguing, and I've read a few articles to this point, or an article or two, I should say, to this point, what they're arguing is that what happens is that the bulk of the burden is then placed on the woman, the financial burden. And yet the pleasure and the sin was shared by both the man and the woman. So why should the woman be burdened financially when the both of them are, are equally guilty or perhaps even the man is more guilty if he was the one who, you know, wooed the lady and, you know, she didn't have experience with men and he kept on promising and whatnot and the both of them did a sin, no question about it. And then he just disappears and khalas, you know, goes her or whatnot. And then she has to deal with the child in the aftermath. And so, one, there is a modern position that why should, you know, the person not also have a financial obligation? So that is something that is a modern opinion. At the same time, I am simply telling you it's there. I cannot, um, because of, you know, my own limitations, uh, I have to stick with the, the great giants and the, the established schools in Madahib. And I will say that I am not aware of any pre-modern opinion that has obligated financial support upon the biological father. That having been said, no scholar ever prohibits this support. And it is definitely the morally correct thing to do. If the person uh, you know, acknowledges this child to be his own, then your husband, the fact that your husband is, uh, you say that you know, helping the child and you know, taking care of the child once in a while and giving money and whatnot, this is something that is the least that he should do. And there's no problem Islamically doing it. The, as I said, the issue is whether he's obligated to do it, whether it's wajib or not. No early scholar said it is wajib, but no scholar said it's haram or makru either. If he wants to give money, he has the right to give money to whomever he wants. And there's no doubt that this child, you know, being a part of, uh, you know, your husband's life and, and being taken care of financially is something that is noble overall, even if the act itself was not noble, the sin was done, but why should that sin be uh, perpetuated? Uh, also, the, the, the final point here, and you asked about the issue of marriage, and you're worried that, you know, you, this boy is coming to your house and you have daughters, you know, from uh, this marriage. And so is there mahramiya or is there prohibition of marriage? And when it comes to this issue, the vast majority of scholars, uh, the Hanbali position, the Maliki position, uh, the Hanafi position, is that they say even if the child is illegitimate, still the marital rules and prohibitions will apply. Hence, if a father, uh, if a, a male and a female uh, engage in premarital intercourse, they have, let's say, a daughter, right? This lady, this girl, shall be prohibited for her biological father and for all of the biological father's sons, and for the biological father's uncles. In other words, that girl or the boy, doesn't matter, it will be considered for the purpose of marriage, like a real child, like a legitimate child. 
not for the purpose of nasab, of inheritance, you know, of, uh, of, of patrilineal uh, descent. That no, they said. But for the purpose of marriage, yes. And of course, there's one madhab that um, disagreed and with our utmost respect for that great Qurashi Imam, even if but this issue, we have to respectfully, simply delegate to the footnotes and leave it as something to know, but never to act upon. No, you just don't do this. Your biological daughter is a daughter for the sake of, of marital purposes, and you simply do not uh, open this chapter or door, and you leave this position as a minority never acted upon. The default position of the Ummah, and Alhamdulillah it is the vast majority position, is that a child born outside of marriage shall be considered a biological child on, for the purposes of marriage, for the purposes of what is allowed and isn't allowed. And therefore, this young boy that is coming to your house is haram for your daughters because your daughters are also the children of the same man who fathered this boy. So they are his half-sisters when it comes to, when it comes to what? Marriage. They are not his half-sisters when it comes to the legal rights and privileges, when it comes to the last name, but they are those half-sisters or I should say stepsisters when it comes to the issue of marriage. And therefore there is no question, there cannot be any marriage between uh, your daughters and between this boy. Likewise, uh, uh, you as well become haram uh, for this boy because he is, you know, you're married to his father. And so there's no issue over there. I just want to point out though, that this is an issue for marriage. Quite a number of ulama, including Ibn Qudama, they said that yes, marriage is haram, but still hijab should be observed because we don't want to respect uh, the sanctity of marriage by extrapolating it to situations outside of marriage. And so what they're basically saying uh, is that they don't want to affirm a normal relationship because it wasn't a normal union. Nonetheless, the point is that that's a technicality about whether to wear or not. The main issue is that this child is not allowed ever to marry your daughters and uh, he should be told that you know your daughters are the children of your 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 father, and he knows who his father is. As your daughter, your, that your daughters are the children of his father, and he should he should know this, and he should view them as people that. Can never he can never marry, and this is the uh, the position of Islamic law as well. I want to conclude this by stating that you know I understand, sister, that uh, clearly this has irritated you, and you have every right to be irritated. But I advise you to allow your husband some leeway in showing love and in showing care for this child. Uh, it's not his fault. Uh, the fact that your, your your husband is spending time with the child and spending money on it, I know that, of course, it will you know, it will cause you some grief because you would rather that he spends on your children and whatnot, but put yourself in the shoes of the child. As long as he's giving you your rights, giving your children and his children his rights, if he gives some time and some money to this child that was born outside of marriage, and inshallah, it affects this child to grow up in somewhat of a stable environment, be a productive person, you know, be a good Muslim, you know, inshallah, expect your reward from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I know it's difficult and awkward, and yes, he should have told you, but what has happened has happened, and you being good to others, inshallah, they're gonna be good back to you, and inshallah, Allah Azza will reward you. And also, I know the child is not yours, but uh, once again, it's not the child's fault, and for you to show as well some kindness and love and compassion, uh, and again, just to bring the heart of the child close to you know the family environment and whatnot, uh, inshallah, you will get your reward in this, and in the end, Allah Azza knows best. Until next time, Jazakumullah khair. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Inna al-Muslimina wal-Muslimati wal-Mu'minina wal-Mu'minati wal-Qanitina wal-Qanitati wal-Sadiqina wal-Sadiqati wal-Sabirina wal-Sabirati wal-Khashi'ina wal-Khashi'at والخاشعين والخاشعات والمتصدقين والمتصدقات والصائمين والصائمات والحافظين فروجهم والحافظات والذاكرين الله كثيرا والذاكرات أعد الله لهم مغفرة وأجرا عظيما